0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. Today in the program, I'm speaking with Corinne Keithley-Sires about her play *Asters*, which is spelled A-S-T-R-S. Am I pronouncing? I We did a pronunciation check on your name. We didn't do a pronunciation check on the title of the play. Is that how you pronounce it? That's how
1: I pronounce it, yeah.
0: Okay, That's Good. Great. Um, could you kind of tell us a bit about? I mean, this this is not a, a particularly new play for you. A newly published, but not not a new uh, work, and and it has a kind of interesting relationship with Fifty uh, Third State Press. Uh, could you kind of tell us that story of of how this play, play came to be and what it led to?
1: Sure. Um, well, I actually I sort of consider this the first play I wrote that is like introduced me into how I was going to approach writing plays, you know, pretty much from then on, even though, you know, methods and, and interests have have shapeshifted as they do. There was like a sort of basic orientation toward just um, receiving uh, everything that was going on around me, what I was studying, because I was in grad school at the time, what I was seeing, if I would sit down at a cafe, and then sort of what was going on in my in my mind and just trying to let them all like braid into this big raw text from which I kind of extracted and refined um, a kind of forming picture. Um, Or, or I I think of this play as a play in the form of a mural rather than necessarily a narrative structure that one might expect to find in a play. So I wrote this play in 2005 um, Mm -hmm. when I was, I think it was my third third semester of four in, uh, the master's MFA program at Brooklyn college where I studied with Mac Wellman. Um, and it takes place in the 53rd state. Um, and it ended up like sort of being populated with some of the playwrights that were in workshop with me, including Sybil Kempson, who plays a, a sort of heroic role inside of it. And, um, (laughs) so later when I, decided to start this press to publish the great work of my buddies, um, who were mostly, you know, people that I'd met through that program or through sort of connections growing out of that program. Um, I ended up deciding that it sort of shared this, um, sense of like building one's own treehouse and being with one's friends, um, Mm -hmm. that, that, um, was sort of the 53rd state. So that's the origin of of how the press came to be named for this place inside the play.
0: Um, how did you meet Sybil? I mean, what was like, it seems like you must've been, you know, pretty close friends <laughs> to make her such a prominent character in the play. Um, uh, and she's obviously, you know, a great playwright in her own right. How did you meet and did you hit it off right away or, you know, did it, what, what was kind of the story of your developing friendship and collaboration?
1: Yeah. Well, I actually barely knew Sybil, At that moment okay wow (laughs) and her
0: first um Mm -hmm.
1: and uh every every like semester at the beginning of workshop mac would ask us like where do you see yourself in five years three months and 17 days or you know something something like that and i remember you know i'm like somebody who like writes down everything uh, like I just I just take notes on everything as I as I uh, listen, and so I just remember writing down what Sybil said. And she's like, "Oh, let me shoot for the moon. I'll be riding across the land on my horse." And you know, she had this vision, and it included the phrase "riding across the land on my horse" and "shoot for the moon." So the sort of first appearance of Sybil just comes right out of that note of what she said she'd be doing. Five years from now. And, you know, if you've ever met Sybil, um,
0: I've not had the pleasure. But
1: <laughs> I mean, you could kind of imagine from her plays, but she's just like very immediately wonderful and completely present. <laughs> so I don't know. And, and I, I sort of have this relationship to my surroundings. Like I'm just a, a gleaner and a collector. So I will I will take any anyone and anything that strikes me and and sort of weave it in, um, you know, kind of magpie style.
0: Um, um, I, I, I first, the first, uh, play of hers that I read was, um, let us now praise Susan Sontag. And I'd been doing a bunch of research for a sort of like narrative realist play about similar topics about like, you know, the, the rural poor during the great depression. And I'd recently read, um, Susan Sontag's book on photography. So I, I thought like, I'm really well equipped to get into this play and, and figure out what's going on. And then I read it and I was like, wow for large sections of this i'm just like along for the ride but with no real sense of like what is on a literal level going on or even like who is on stage and i feel like that's maybe even more true of of aster's that there's you know it's in a kind of like gertrude stein way there's very little in terms of delineating different characters from one another delineating dialogue from stage directions um which you know i feel like for me kind of raises questions about the relationship between a play as a written text and the relationship of and a play as a performance text like do you see those as being kind of radically different things or do you feel like you want people to be able to read your plays and think okay this is sort of what this might be like on stage
1: uh i mean that's such a big huge ongoing question for me like I don't see them as radically different in kind. I see that I see all of that as on a continuum. And I think that like, basically I come from a choreographic background Mm -hmm. and then sort of, you know, worked with or was inspired by people who would incorporate texts of all kinds into performance. Some of which were like kind of located as like, this is a character speaking. And some of which were just like, here's instructions, you know, on how to toast something, or I'm going to recite the entire, uh, takeout menu from my local Chinese restaurant, you know? So the sort of sense of like all text is fair text to speak, um, is, is a pretty foundational idea for me. And this, you know, particular text, I just sort of call it a libretto. Um, and I think of it as being entirely heard Um, but Mm. I do have a number of plays where there's a character called the voice of italics, which is basically like the play slash stage directions speaking on its own behalf. And that is a spoken, you know, that is intentional as, as a spoken text. And I do often have other stage directions, which might be like notes to a you know, performers for like what happens or, you know, sort of in a stage directions in a more traditional sense, Mm -hmm. but I'm like very uh, drawn to the kind of permeable spot between character and, and text. And, um, and sometimes I, I, this figure of like the play speaking on its own behalf is something that um, gives me a lot of permission and pleasure. So this particular text is like, it's, 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 it has no stage directions or it is entirely stage directions. Like you could, you could think of it either way, but it's sort of like, it's all meant to be spoken and or sung. Um, or if you wanted, you could project the text. Cause I also like performance reading. <laughs> That's yeah. like one of my favorite perverse things to do is just have people read silently together. Um so, yeah, I mean, sometimes it's easier for people to just say, like, that's a performance text and not a play. But, um, you know, I'd say like a play is anything that you I mean, it's the kind of Gertrude Stein response, right? It's a play because I see it said it's a play mm-hmm. um, and I want you to treat it as a play. Um. So, yeah, that that sort of like barrier around the definition of a play in relation to like. The, what the 20th century mainstream thinks is a play is like is not a very interesting barrier to me, I would say. Um, sure, sure. Even though I enjoy plays and I read lots of them and I you know love thinking about them. so it's not that I'm uninterested in, in those plays. I'm just I cannot I've never been able to behave with respect <laughs> to that barrier. <laughs> and I just yeah. I just don't try um, to do it. Um, and I think, you know, a couple years after I wrote *Asters*, I wrote my first play that was like just dialogue, like it was actually a conversation and it wasn't some kind of text that was more than the story, you know, and na- like narrative or, 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 or coming from that kind of standpoint of like narration or history more than dialogue, um, mm-hmm. So that was like a big breakthrough for me. And for a while I wrote only interviews because that was like a form of conversation that seemed like not freighted by DOXA around what was appropriate uh, dramatically, but had so much life and, and uh, you know, time coursing through it when, um, so yeah, my, my sort of way into writing, writing more traditional spoken parts was was actually through writing interviews when and you
0: write
1: it precedes that um yeah for me
0: when you write a play in the form of an interview like are you thinking of you know the Stanislavski things of like this this person being interviewed has an objective and you know et cetera, or are you, or are, you are you more just kind of using it as a as a kind of scaffolding to do writing on
1: I think of it as a scaffolding to like be in the presence of a person whose language is telling us something about life and living and experience but i'm i'm um I'm rarely working with the idea of objective or the kind of like desire orientation mm-hmm. that belongs to that idea of acting and I think you know one of the things that um in my like super aggro (laughs) days I was very very against acting as like this thing that ruins the plays of the people you know or my (laughs) plays you know not all plays some plays really want acting and actually a lot of my plays now want acting but it wants actors who can drop the acting too at times Mm -hmm. um but that particular intent like interpretation of um all speech as motivated by objective or desire uh is not not something that I've ever uh written towards or really related to. I've sort of been more interested in like the kind of material of language, and like if you just saturate yourself in it 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 points toward life mm-hmm. like, I don't think of it as instrumental. Often in the, in the things that I'm writing, um, well, a lot of the interview plays that I wrote were really up <laughs> <So, laughs> The people who like had to figure them out, had to ask actorly questions. Yeah. Um, you no, know, like, what does it mean? They had to understand what it meant, even though there's not an explanation. And so there is a kind of like deep dramaturgy, but it's not, it's not like centered around, um, contest or. Yeah or desire in that, you know, kind of most traditionally articulated way that belongs to maybe the kind of distilled version of method acting that gets handed down, right? Because everything Mm -hmm. gets really diluted and, and overly ossified as it gets passed on. Yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, so, you know, I used to say to actors, just like, say and mean the sentence. Right, and it's like, and not the subtext, or you know, like not anything else, just like mean the sentence that you're saying. Um, and I wasn't really writing text that didn't operate in the sentence that was actually being uttered, the mm-hmm. way you know, some plays operate on different registers, including the subtextual. Um, mine usually don't.
0: Did actors like that direction, or did they find no. it frustrating? <laughs> no, they hated it. <laughs>
1: I mean basically, you get a set of people who've like kind of um encountered different pathways into performance techniques um you know whether that's coming from like viewpoints or mm-hmm. um poet's theater or you know um the kind of like Judson dance theater related. Um, kind of larger sphere of performance um, because, you know, dance has a lot of text um, often and has, you know, for a long time. Yeah. So I think, you know, you'll find people who are like kind of comfortable in that with, with that realm of like treating text as, as matter um, or sound or rhythm or, um, you know, many things at once obviously text is always meaningful. Like it's all, we're always making meaning out of language and trying to create meaning using it. But, um, uh, you know, kind of, there's a comfort with saying, okay, right now we're just going to say the word orange. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, that's the same as like doing, a, you know, spinning around in space. Like it could have as, as little connected meaning as, as a, physical gesture, um, uh, if it needs, if that's the case right now, you know, if this is just a moment of disconnection and just the word orange. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I sort of, I've, I've, I've always thought that my plays operate with like micro stories everywhere, you know, they're not Mm -hmm. actually just going around being like orange, orange, (laughs) orange, right. They're they're not that, um, like, you know, insistent on just pure language or anything.
0: And there is, there is narrative in this play. There's a lot of like actual narration in this play and, you know, storytelling in a, in a, you know, weird disjointed way, but you can follow certain characters that pop up throughout the text. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, I love storytelling. Um, When I wrote that play, I was like really obsessed with this idea of like the simultaneity of all possible worlds (laughs) And mm-hmm. Louis August Blanqui, who is this like revolutionary who wrote a wrote a book in prison. He was like part of the Paris Commune in the nineteenth mm-hmm. century. And I came across his work um when I was reading the, the Walter Benjamin Arcades project. And I was I was actually just like taking a class where we were just reading that book um simultaneously as I was writing this play. And Blanqui like goes away to prison and then he writes this like sad book called Eternity Under the Stars. Um, Eternity Parles Astro which is where Astro's the title comes from where he kind of you know entertains this vision of like um, the same type of bifurcating universe that's part of everything everywhere all at once mm-hmm. right every juncture of choice produces both realities and and you so there's this like infinite bifurcation of possible worlds but you're like condemned to be in the one you are so he's sitting there like I'm condemned to be for the rest of my life, but I know that there's some other world or some other life, you know, some other possible world where I'm free, where any number of things, so kind of narratively, there was a freedom to just slip slide between this like constant almost as if if the narration is just like riding a train track and just keeps swerving tracks from like which possible world it's in. Um, so yeah, there, there are, there are recurrences everywhere, um, of figures. And then there's these kind of like replaying, but with different fates. Um, but there's no single, you know, there's no like ground zero, Mm -hmm. um, uh, within it. So that's sort of, yeah, that's, that's sort of, there, there is, there is a world to it. That's why I call it a mural play. It's like, it just kind of fills in like, you know, in a mural all time, like historical time is simultaneous with, with other historical time that it wasn't, you know, actually simultaneous with. Cause you can like put, here's the history of this town or whatever, and all yeah. of these different scenes. And so that was a, that was a kind of freeing idea to think of it as, as a slowly filling in mural, um, and actually the only real, I gave this play a few stagings, like kind of, you know, just one night stagings. Um, but but we did stage it as a live drawn mural the last time it ever saw life. So there was like a recorded radio play. And then we just had all of this, um, these kind of templates. And we used overhead projectors and put huge amount of paper on the wall. And just, there was like a team of eight of us and we just, drew the whole time, um, just filling in the this mural of the 53rd state. Um, so not uh, not staging to everyone, but it was st- staging sure. for this piece.
0: When I was a kid, I uh, was cast in a musical, and I didn't want to be in a musical. And um, I, was, I got into this argument with my dad, where he was sort of like, I was complaining that I had to dance. And he was like, everyone in a musical has to dance. And I said, I I bet you not everyone in this musical is going to dance. And he said, "Okay, I'll bet you $100 that everyone in this musical is going to dance. That's what musicals are. And um, and one kid at one point during a song crossed across the stage. But other than that, didn't dance. And whether or not this counted as dance is probably my father and my uh, longest running uh, of, of many long running arguments. Um, so I'm sympathetic to the idea that uh, drawing on a stage is staging.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I'm also sympathetic to the idea that crossing the stage is dancing and also not dancing. I've, that's an irresolvable
0: argument. I think. Yes. We have found it to be such, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of rabbits in this play and sort of like <laughs> rabbit eco-terrorists. Um, can you talk about that and what's, I mean, to me, I guess like if I were to, if you were like dead and somebody had assigned me to write, you know, a paper about this, I would sort of talk about how, you know, it's, it's an interesting idea because it juxtaposes something we think of as like soft and maybe feminine and maybe like innocent and harmless with something we think of as like hard and masculine and political and public and stuff. Um, is that what's fun to you about writing about rabbit terrorists or is there something else that's fun about it for you?
1: Horror rabbits, um, Yeah. I mean, first of all, I have to say like, I, I, um, I really allow myself to do talking animals and talking fruit and mm-hmm. whatever, you know, like I, I, um, I'm not, um, I'm not too proud <laughs> to- <laughs> With <laughs> that sort of kid mode, um, but I think that you know my my sort of orientation is always like I take what comes, and I don't necessarily understand it for a long time or ever. Um, so I think that like Augustus B. I don't remember how the rabbit appeared in the imagination you know, in the stream of a free write or whatever. Um, But it came somehow out of that name. There was Louis Auguste Blanqui, and then it became Augustus B. Rabbit. Um, I have absolutely no recollection of why the rabbit. And then that became Militant B. Rabbit. And I was like, okay, (laughs) Uh, let's find out what that means. And, um, you know, I think there is a delight to like... um, like following something hard where you think there's something soft. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time I was reading a lot. I remember I was reading like the metaphysical club, which is a sort sure. of journalism book about pragmatism. And I, and there was this section where Oliver Wendell Holmes, like there's all these people who are, who are going off to fight in the civil war, um, And some, some like recounting of, of these like just awful traumatic experiences uh, in the war. So that, um, that, uh, you know, as I was saying before about just kind of like letting everything, everything find its way into the same braid, uh, Mm -hmm. even though it's like coming from totally uh, disparate sources, like, I think the violence of this, of the civil war and this one. Uh, Battle of Balls Bluff that I read about um just like was stuck in my mind, and that probably just like swept in and colored the colored the rabbit stuff um but yeah, there's not sometimes sometimes there's like a really like a a key like a interpretive key that I understand at the end of things um like oh that's why th- that's why it's that you know. Um, that's why I wrote it in that form. Uh, that's why I entertained that image, but I can't say that I've ever like come across a like, aha. (laughs) That's why this play is about rabbits. Just that I, um, I I don't know. I think, I think, uh, yeah, nature is violent. So, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um, yeah, I'm sorry if that was an unsatisfying answer.
0: No, no, not at all. Um, I went to grad school at Columbia, and one of my professors was Charles Mee, and somebody asked him in class once, like, you know, if his plays are largely, if not entirely, composed of texts other people wrote them, then like, why are they his? Like, what right does he have to say that he wrote them? Um, and he was, he, his answer was sort of like, well, yeah, I mean, the texts all come from different places, but they all kind of flow through me, and they excite something in me. And so that gives them a sort of like, coherence and integrity even if i don't understand what that coherence and integrity uh, entails like that just he just sort of asserted that as true that like you know a, a human mind is a coherent thing and and thus anything that it arranges will have a sort of like uh you know solidity to it um is yeah. that is that sort of does that rhyme with kind of your compositional process i mean you're not really using it's collage as such but you're sort of you know, collaging different themes and ideas from, you know, different stuff you're reading. It seems like we were reading a lot of the same stuff in college and I did okay. totally different stuff. So, um, but, but is that, does that feel like, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm up to. Uh,
1: yeah, I think so. And I've been, I think one of the things that happened when I was writing asters was I learned how to sort of be present at the, in the like interior of my mind and, just like as a field recorder out in the world, like sim either simultaneously or sort of like quickly oscillating between those two um, points of view, and just sort of like capturing that stream, that dual stream. Um, I think that that idea of you know um, everything that everything that passes through my mind, sort of attains my own signature, um, mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense to me. And one of the thinkers that I have spent a lot of time with and, and, um, and, and I have much more time to spend with that. I love who thinks about thinking and is William James. And mm-hmm. you know, he has this like famous, uh, line in, um, principles of psychology in the chapter that is called stream of consciousness or the stream of thought, um, you know, from which we sort of like coalesce that idea Mm -hmm. is like, we should say it thinks instead of, I think the way we say, like it's raining. Um, and the only thing that we can say about thought is that thought goes on, you know, and he's sort of like, countering this idea of like where, you know, where does thought come from or some kind of essential numinous yeah, man specific place or whatever, you know, he was, he was just trying to say like, what can we say that we know happens that we know we're not making anything up about thought. And he said, the best we can say is that thought goes on and um, was interested in this, you know, just that like all the tools of thought that we have are shared and, you know, so we experience them very intensely and personally and with the kind of heat of our of our sense of self, right? But like the mm-hmm. words I'm using and, you know, the figures of speech that I am like, yes, that makes sense. And I'm going to build my world model around it. Like those are flowing in and out of us um, from literature, from the existence of language, from, you know, instinctual natural history from like so many spaces. And we, we don't, you know, you couldn't enumerate them. Um, so that, that idea of, I don't know, it it creates a very like non proprietary, um, orientation towards the sort of matter of the world, Mm -hmm. um, perhaps. Um, and there is like, you know, I think you, you could probably pick out a text that I wrote from something that somebody else would write using similar approaches, right? There's like, there's like something, some kind of temperamental, something that, that, um, does seem to coalesce or, or make choices or, you know, the sort of appetites and preferences and pleasures that guide the choices that you're making when you're writing. Um, so, yeah, I I do relate to that even though I I I don't use found like found text to that degree, but mm-hmm. I feel like I feel like I'm always I I mostly look have to feed myself with a lot of outward looking in order to write even though I'm probably always just writing my diary,
0: <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah.
0: I talked with Michael Marr for this podcast a few months ago, and he said that he has never written a play that didn't have its anchor in some other text. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, which I think for me, like leads to the maybe interesting question of like, are there any plays that don't have an anchor in some other text? <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> like just in general, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I feel like there are works that try to hide their sourcing and there are works that try to sort of display their sourcing. Um, yeah. and it seems like yours, I mean, this play of yours is, is sort of the latter of the two options. Do, Do you think, think that's you true? Think sourcing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, you know, some of the names that you're saying, I, I, I were sort of surprising to hear, but th- there are enough references in the text itself that I, you know, I was able to pick out that Blankey is, is in the play and, you know, in some right. way. Um,
1: Yeah, I think I tend to hide things in, you know, in plain sight and think that they're really obvious, but they're just like submerged in the surface of everything else. So you Mm -hmm. wouldn't necessarily pick them out, but they're usually they're usually uh, there if you if you know what you're looking for. Um, I think I would say like the thing that maybe differentiates my like writing habits is that, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm in a literary Conversation, But I also do a lot of structural sourcing, especially from places outside of a narrative or outside of plays or outside of fiction, um, you know, uh, like, it, especially with respect to, like, navigating through what the structure of something can be, just be like, oh, this is going to be in the form of a building, um, hmm. this plays in the form of a telescope. You know this place and and so i enjoy playing that game um uh kind of really really widely with with the literature you know of 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 or just you know the sort of matter that that is in the world mm-hmm. but i do agree that every play is i mean one of the things that i love about literature you know is is that kind of long slow conversation and i um i recently did this like life review thing because i'm in training to start supporting people in the process of dying um just as a volunteer um but i sort of went through this like end of life doula training and one of the things that we did was like you know think about like as if we were dying now like what would what was meaningful about our lives and one of the like random things that came up in this like sort of huge list was like, I really love the idea of leaving behind live, like talking to people after I was dead, <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. like leaving these little books, you know, and my, my books, my circulation are, you know, it's like minor, you know, I don't have a,
0: mm-hmm.
1: a great deal of ambition. Uh, I have ambition to persist, um, and to circulate things, but not, I'm not, I'm not scrabbling for scale. And, um, so, you know, just, just the idea of like leaving almost like that sort of geocaching game It's <laughs> like, I love the idea of, of like being the ghost in yeah. this text. Um, and that kind of long distance conversation is with other authors and other, other readers. Um,
0: There's a letter by F. Scott Fitzgerald to Zelda Fitzgerald where he tells her in the same letter that he doesn't believe in God anymore and that he's going to become a writer. And that always seems like (laughs) sort of like a, a, you know, obviously there are writers who believe in God, but that has always seemed like a sort of like profoundly true, you know, fact to me (laughs) about like what writing is like. And, you know, it's 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 not. the the, it's not the same type of immortality but it is a type of you know to be part of an ongoing conversation because you know even if your your books completely fall out of print and nobody reads them they read things that were influenced by things that were influenced by things that were influenced by you and that idea of sort of like a you know a literary or theatrical tradition is something that i i sort of you know even just talking to you about it on a tuesday afternoon it, it almost brings tears to my eyes like it's so beautiful to me that you know there's like a fire that's set you know Five thousand years ago, and it's first written down by Aeschylus, and eventually makes its way to me. Just seems, yeah. uh, you know, magical. Like in a real sense, like it seems like magic to me. Um, I don't have a question, but I just wanted to say yeah. that.
1: well <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful, and agreed. Like it's so, it it's so special. It's one of my favorite things. Is like, you know, that sort of idiotic surprise you have when you read something by someone you've never heard of and you're like wow this this thing is so full of wisdom and life and yeah like energy and you know it's like because it's so easy to just like discount that kind of like ageist thing that happens or or you know where you're like ah that that's like some 1950s author or i don't know whatever i'm just making updates but like sure there's, a, there's an easy way of like dismissing the things that haven't been like named as you know sort of nominated for preservation and it's like just such a it's such a wild joy to like via this lasting thing which is you know a text Mm -hmm. um like encounter this intelligence yeah and and i find it so bracing and kind of life-saving and you know Mm i i I could, I could not get through a week without <laughs> tapping into that, that like the remainder that, that we humans have left each other. <laughs>
0: yeah. So
1: I do think it's pretty amazing.
0: You mentioned, you know, that you don't have a particularly wide circulation. And I think that's true of, of most books by 53rd state press. It's, it's, it's a small <laughs> press in every sense of the word, but yeah. I, I, I'm interested in the question of kind of audience, like, who do you when you write a book or when you publish a book like who do you who do you imagine picking it up and and reading it do you imagine it being i mean I, I probably a lot of it is just people you personally know um and i assume you probably know a lot of a lot of people you know having having been a working playwright for you know almost 20 years now um but or maybe more i'm not sure um do you think about that as being your audience like do you think that it is work for this community of you know downtown in brooklyn associated avant-garde theater people or do you do you think of it as sort of part of that wider you know sea of culture
1: yeah i mean that's a that's like a like the answer to that question if you'd asked me that question like 10 years ago i would have given you a different answer um I think when I started fifty third state, it was like very much for that community slash scene, you know, mm-hmm. that that is like downtown uh New York performance, which is where I kinda grew up as as an adult, right? I like went there as a dancer and then and then met Mac and kind of drifted into writing and you know, found this working community that was full of a lot of friendships and and when I was younger I was like I was very much a participant you know I was I'm I was Mm -hmm. a real enthusiast and and a and a participant and I think right now I'm actually like I haven't lived in New York for five years and the three years before that I just moved back like my husband and I moved away when he went to grad school and then we came back, but we had a kid. And so like sort of from the point where we moved away in 2010 and maybe even before that, when I decided to go to PhD school, um, to try to attain some stability in my life, which turned out to be really not, not a good <laughs> right, move. <laughs> but, um, anyway, it was cool. It was a lot yeah. of reading. I studied with, I got to study, I, you know, that was, um, I don't regret it, sure. but it didn't look
0: that's something that i'm discovering my in my own life is that like academia is a stable career only relative to playwriting you know
1: oh my god but but anyway i feel like i've actually kind of um slowly withdrawn from that community um not withdrawn my love but just like mm-hmm. my time and i'm you know i'm i'm uh uh you know raising my kid and living in the countryside and um so so now, so the question now is like, yeah, if I write who, the, who the hell is it for, you know, like who will find it? I don't know. Um, yeah. one of the things that I loved about 53rd state was like, you make a book and you're like, basically the, the earliest model was, was merch. Like I, you know, I had, <laughs> sure. my boyfriend at the time was, um, or no, just before that, um, I'd spent a lot of time around like. Indie Rock people, yeah. touring bands, you know, just like really, really scruffy uh touring bands selling shirts and and whatnot and zines and um and merch was was a was a big part of how they ate while they were on tour. And um so I made, you know, I would like Nature Theater of Oklahoma, who actually has, you know, more uh viable numbers of people who would come see their stuff even then like I would just print stuff up and then I would I would basically artists could buy as many books they wanted at merch rate which was at cost mm-hmm. and then they would sell them at their shows and make money cuz I wasn't able to like pay anyone for doing a book but like people could sell their own books at shows so in that sense like the original audience of the books was like very much kind of in the scene but then they would like trickle out you know, to random places like, Oh, I've got a couple of librarian friends who stock the shelves with you know, 53rd state books. Or like, I remember Kate Kramer, who now runs the press, like, uh, who I just like passed the torch to and, and, and just gave it to her. Um, but she actually encountered one of my plays in her college library. And oh, wow. that was her path to finding out about like Mac Wellman's Brooklyn college program. And like, you know, like that sort of introduced her into the scene. So it sort of came back to that little scene. But, but there is this like idea of like the stranger, the possibility of the stranger at the other end of it is one of the, one of the really beautiful things about printing up even, you know, 300 copies of a book Mm -hmm. that, um, that are mostly going to sit in my closet. (laughs) Sure. Sure. Um, there's, um, uh, it's, it's like small, but there's like a potentiality for, for movement. And because I always did short run digital printing, there was never like an edition size, you know, Mm -hmm. we just like print a hundred more when we needed a hundred more. Um, so yeah, but I don't know. I don't know who, I don't know who's at the other end. Um, you know, I tend to get, I used to get like one fan email a year from like somebody in Finland. (laughs) It's like, I found your ukulele color covers. Oh my God. You know, and there was like these sort of weird like t- tiny interactions with strangers were like as thrilling as the best, like, getting right? a gig at wherever you know yeah um which was also thrilling but but was mostly about being part of a community and being part of this sort of subculture that that uh you know worshiped at this strange room <laughs> mm-hmm. um of theater um so, yeah, I don't I, I, don't know who the audience... I never have fully known who the audience is, but but books are, you know, they don't rot unless you, I guess, leave them in a damp basement. <laughs> unless you kind of don't have to figure it out right away. Yeah. You can kind of make the book and then be like, I'll just figure out how to get it into someone's hands another year.
0: But that is certainly an advantage that books have over live performance. It's like they can circulate in this wider weird sort of random way that allows for these, you know, these connections to happen that seem totally unbelievable. Yeah. Whereas the likelihood that somebody will just wander in in off the street and see, you know, a play or it's possible. I'm sure it's happened. I don't think it's ever happened to me. I had that
1: experience. I did a, a, like an in-progress showing of this oratorio I wrote the libretto for that Elena Ferris is composing and we, she got a summer lab spot at national sawdust and this guy came, I was talking to him in the bar afterwards. Like, I don't know, like his friend knew someone who knew someone, you know, who was going to be at this, at our show, like really randomly, he was just visiting from the Midwest somewhere. He's like a policeman in Michigan or something. And, uh, and he just like came to the show, and he'd never been to anything like it before, <laughs> mm. and he was like blown away because you know I had this like amazing cast of singers, and it was just a really, really beautiful you know we've worked a long time on it, and it was it was it, like you know it's a, it's a beautiful piece, like it's so much more than what I could produce by myself like it's a collaboration that I love, but um that was just such an such a thrilling thing for somebody to come in who like Has no investment in the scene, doesn't know anything about it. Just like he's he's they're they're on a night out, and they just like oh let's go listen to this music for forty five minutes before we move on. Yeah, that has happened um, to me once, and it was like definitely one of the best like audience experiences of my life. Just so direct and unmediated. Yeah,
0: and that's very validating. Like when somebody you know, there's always the fear that you're making work that can only be understood by this like coterie audience. And then, so for yeah. somebody totally out of that audience to be like, wow, what a great thing. You know, it's almost like more validating than, you know, I don't know, Mac Wellman or whoever coming and yeah. saying good work, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, Mac, when he wants to compliment you, he's like, he'll be like, we should, we should take her out and shoot her. <laughs> I don't know. He always says terrorizing things like that, but, right. um, yeah, yeah, no, it's great. It's great to like learn this, just sort of the the value of the thing as a as a human experience, mm-hmm. and, and not kind of all wound up in the question of like, uh, how's my career going? You know, is this is this gig at National Sawdust going to turn into a commission somewhere? Or you know what I mean? Like all those other threads of investment that we all have in showing our work in progress, but.
0: I used to think that thinking about making art and thinking about making a career in art were like in a, in a, a slight tension with one another, like sort of like at like a 45 degree angle. But mm-hmm. now I think they're actually at like a 180 degree angle. Like I think they're just like actually, you know, in direct irreconcilable uh, conflict. Like I, I think it's sort of a zero sum game where like the more time you spend thinking about your career the last time you're spending doing the actual thing um, do you feel yeah. that way or like how what how do you approach the like you know career part of the equation yeah.
1: I mean, I should say like there's definitely i know artists who've managed to spend a lot of time working on their career who who also make really great art sure sure, so I've seen it done, but um i don't know for myself, I actually found this this interview recently I was like unpacking boxes and I found my paper copy of an interview that Amber Reed did with me when I had a show up in the ice factory in like 2008. Um, and and I was talking about how I'd like disavowed profession, and I was like only into amateur theatricals. And like everyone should be putting on plays in their backyards because that's what me and my friends did. And you know, saying like that that may may sort of track through the sort of markers of career, but like it's it's just like not about it's not about that career trajectory. And and it was funny to come back to it because I actually feel like that that sort of ethos has held true for me. Like every time there's a tension between career thinking and sort of the freedom that I need to be able to follow without rationalizing, without justifying, you know, whatever the, you know, the, the appearance of the militant rabbit or whatever. Um, I've always chosen that freedom over, uh, over the, Kind of consolidation uh, that I think one needs to sort of become a viable uh, career artist, and for whatever reason I just like I can't stop running away from those those trajectories like I'm just a swerver, and I always have been um, you know if I'm on track for something i'm just I just really want to protect my own engagement with art and i think i'm really you know i am suspicious of like all the all the ways that um that ego and vanity um can just interfere with the art i'm making you know, i am i'm really suspicious of my own ego and my own vanity and my own ambition uh, tied up into that. And it's like, it's kind of like a big mess. Like, I I feel like I'm always like, r- wrestling with this, you know, because I also do, you know, I have always, I've, I've always wanted to, like, make this stuff, you know, to like, prove mm-hmm. to myself, that I can do what I'm. And, and I would love to have, you know, a chance to like, have an opera company do this, this oratorio, you know, that Elena and I are making or, you know, I would love to get those, those chances. But, um, but at the same time, I just feel like there's something so life-giving about this like process that you don't, you just don't um, create any other obligations other than your obligation to like, let it become what it is, let the piece become what it is. And, you know, and that gives me back a lot too personally it's it's a feedback loop but so yeah I don't know I mean I, I think I always like solved the sort of career part too with like trying to trying to just have a teaching career um can just like reference that PhD story earlier <laughs> it didn't work out
0: but um do you teach like I
1: playwriting know, like, like, I've 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 preferred to fund my own work I guess mm-hmm. and then Uh, which is what I'm doing now. Like I, I actually teach independently and I use what I earn basically to, um, to pay other people (laughs) when I need collaborators or, um, so I don't know, there's like a real sense of freedom, uh, and like there's, there's always this desire to protect the freedom to experience creative process and not to equate it with, uh, career or even labor, you know, uh, even though I've, I, you know, I've been in other people's work in ways that I would say like, that was a job. You should pay me for it. You know, I'm giving you my time and, and this isn't, this isn't my thing. I'm, I'm, I'm working for you. So I've had a labor relationship to performance, but, um, that's not really something that I want in relation to my own work. Um, even though I do pay people, but,
0: um, but you don't want to think about what you do as, as labor.
1: Yeah. I'd just rather earn money somewhere else and like, keep the, keep that part of things just, just really like free and personal. It's just just so personal to me. I, I, I wouldn't want to lose that. Um, the pleasure of that,
0: I think. I think there is something to the, like, Wallace Stevens thing of, like, becoming an insurance agent and spending 20 years writing a book of poetry, <laughs> you know, there's, like, a certain, like, that. that is in its own way, like, a, as pure a way of dedicating your life to art than, you know, trying to figure out how to make 100% of your income come from the work you do, the you know, yeah. the, the, the artistic work you do.
1: Yeah, and, like, more power to people who can make a living from it. I think also, like, when I decided, oh, I want to have a home life, <laughs> I right. want to have a family, like, I couldn't, I, I just, like, couldn't reconcile the um uh, itinerancy that was needed, even just for, like, teaching gigs. Like, for the first many years of my sort of adult life, I just went around and did guest artist gigs at colleges, you know, and I was, I was home half of the year at most, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so at the point where I was like, I no longer want to live this way. I didn't see any other way to make money as an artist. And I think making money from teaching and not from like the sort of product of your art still creates like enough of a, of a wall to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. Although I loved when I started teaching English at Brooklyn college, just cause I was I was doing the MFA there and the playwriting MFA is in English and not in theater. Um, So the adjunct opportunities are to teach basically like college writing, like, you know, how to write an essay. Um, And it was so amazing after like 10 years of, of like going around being like the guest teacher and trying to like basically be my own currency with my charm and wit and, you know, artistic uh, uh, signature, like, just to go into this school, this classroom. And like, people are just like, uh, that's just my teacher that I have to write an essay for. And like, I was so anonymous, like yeah, yeah, they cared less who I was. And it was, it was so wildly wonderful to just be able to teach and, and it not be about me at all, which I think teaching really shouldn't be about you, but I was probably a pretty immature teacher mm-hmm. at that time. And so I sort of taught in a performative way. Um, because uh,
0: i i've taught playwriting a bit and and my sense has always been that the students i uh, don't care about my work and aren't interested in hearing me talk about it <laughs> you know <laughs> like they're even in that situation where you know it does feel a little little closer to you know to your heart there's still students who are primarily interested in what they're writing you know they're not yeah. they don't really care about oh i've had this commission i've done this writer's group they're like okay well can i read my thing yeah. now
1: right yeah and they're just like ah oh, you're just a teacher you you must have failed at something cuz you're just a teacher right yeah no i have i've encountered that too but i but i think like being sort of fully separated from my from the sort of creative uh identity was was kind of freeing for a while mm hmm
0: me. Well, Corinne, I could, I could talk about this stuff all day, but uh, I've already taken up a lot of your time and I, I want to be respectful of that. Um, thank you so much for uh, being on New Books and Performing Arts to talk about your play Astros and all the other things we ended up talking about. I really enjoyed yeah. getting to talk with you.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed it too. Thanks for having me.